right, folks, thank you for joining me for another episode of Politics and Pints here on Jackman Radio. I'm your host, one half of the Jackman Twins, Eric Jackman, and I'm so excited tonight to be joined by a true progressive, um, a favorite of New Hampshire politics, at least in some circles, if you're not Chris Sununu, uh, current executive counselor from the 2nd District, it's Mr. Andrew Valinsky, and he's running for governor in the Democratic primary. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Eric, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome to have you on. So how you been during all this uh, quarantine and COVID-19 business? You know, it's, it's an odd time to campaign for office, but uh, we're making do with the phone and Zoom and meetings uh, and radio shows like this. Um, but look, I, I'm not food insecure. I'm not worried about housing. Whatever minor problems I have are completely trivial. There are people who are really struggling during this, and we need to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, you know, I tell everybody when they ask me how you guys doing up there in New Hampshire. And I say, well, you know, we are a relatively small state and I haven't had any interruption in work. So I feel very blessed to continue continuing to get a paycheck every week and haven't had any issues there. But there's so many other people who are not in that boat. So we're definitely always thinking about them and working on solutions to how we can fix that and avoid this from happening in the future. So you're running in a primary, uh, which is on September 8th against... Uh, the senator, state senator Dan Feltes. So I'd just like you to, because I was looking through Dan's record, looking through your record, I'd like you to just kind of differentiate the two of you. You guys agree, obviously agree on a lot of things, but where are you different than him, and why should Democratic voters pick you instead of him in the primary on September 8th? So look, the reason I'm running uh, really stems from my 25 years worth of work to improve education funding and the quality of education in New Hampshire. Uh, we've lived, my wife Amy and I have lived in New Hampshire for 38 years. Through much of that time, I've worked on what's called the Claremont case, trying to improve funding in New Hampshire. Uh, that led me to conclude that the system we use to fund education, mental health, roads and bridges, many important services is broken. And that's why I won't take the pledge, which is a political hack to promise never to talk about how poorly, how unfair our revenue system is in New Hampshire. My friend Dan has taken the pledge. And that's a, a throwback, a chain to a promise put forward by the union leader 40 years ago. I'm looking forward, I'm not looking back. So one of the big differences is the pledge and our willingness to talk about new options, new approaches, particularly in the economy that will come out of this pandemic, there will be a new normal and we can't take anything off the table. It all has to be up for consideration. So that's a big difference between us. The other big difference I'd say is I, I happen to be a grandfather. I have two little grandsons and when I think of the climate and the environment, I think about it through the lens of being a grandfather. And that's why I am so strongly opposed to the building of fracked gas pipelines in New Hampshire. Um, as a matter of fact, if I lean this way, you can see there's an anti-pipeline sign in my office Excellent. here. Um, I, it makes no sense. Uh, fracked gas is more harmful uh, to the environment than carbon is by a great deal. Building a new infrastructure 
that you'll have to pay for for 20 or 30 years at a time when the scientists tell us we have eight or 10 years to bend the curve makes no sense. Uh, and Dan supports that pipeline and I oppose it um, for the reasons I'm telling you. The other difference I'd say relates to how we conduct our campaigns. So I don't take corporate money. I've never exploited loopholes in our finance system. Um, and I don't take fossil fuel money. Uh, Dan has taken all those monies. He has had to return them. Uh, to his credit, he did return them. Uh, when it became public, he was taking those monies. There's an NHPR report on that. But here's the thing. His campaign has broken records by how much they've raised in this race. My campaign has broken records by how many contributors we have. So we have twice as many contributors at this juncture of any campaign that's run entirely through the primary and the general. So it's a very different approach. We have a lot of small dollar people powered donations and it means I don't owe anyone any special favors. People are supporting me because they think I can do a good job and that makes all the difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love that video of you on Twitter where you ripped up that $500 check from uh, <laughs> some, some corporate skullduggery, some, some group that was saying, Hey, here's 500 bucks, man. If uh, you know, you get in there, we'll call you. We'll remember that check we cut you. Well, it's worse than that. Um, I got the check from a fortune 100 company. Didn't, I don't know anyone at the company didn't ask for it. It just showed up and I just let it sit on my desk. And then two weeks later, I found out that this company was up for a big state contract that okay. I was going to have to approve. Yep. And it became really clear how cynical this is. Um, and that led to the video of me tearing up the check. Yeah, well, that's great. And that just that simple action right there can resonate with people who were sick and tired of bought and paid for uh, political prostitutes, because whether it's the federal level, the state level, you know, um, my, my, my friend Jesse Ventura says, who was governor of Minnesota, if you get in there, you should wear a NASCAR jacket with all your corporate sponsors, you know? <laughs> and I like that. I think politicians should be forced to wear a NASCAR jacket. So if Andrew Valinsky gets to be governor, you'll, you, you'll have a, a blank NASCAR jacket with uh, no corporate sponsorship on it. Or I'll have one with 10,000 tiny little stickers on it, <laughs> uh, representing all the people who... I may have to get a bigger jacket. Than right. I so it's, it looks like you're following the kind of the Bernie Sanders model. I know you guys are friends and you endorsed him for president in 15 and in 2020, and he's endorsed your campaign. Um, so you're taking a page out of that where you're getting smaller donations, but for more people and you can continue to tap those donors for future uh, donations and then help expand uh, your fundraising network. Yeah. I don't have a lot of people who write checks with commas in them. Uh, it just, there, there were people who approached me early on who said they would write those checks if I took the pledge. Mm. And I, I just refuse to do that. I think school funding is too important to sell out in that way. Even if I get elected, then you can't do anything. And that's been the problem. So we're making a clean break in how we do the campaign and what our goals are. 
Well, that's awesome. Good for you. And, and I'm, I'm happy to see a candidate running a campaign like that. Um, so obviously in our small state in New Hampshire, uh, drug addiction and opioids and heroin use is a, is a huge problem. Um, we've all been affected by it. We all either know somebody who's addicted or unfortunately has died from it. I've had a couple of my classmates um, pass away in the last few years who I knew since fourth grade, went through middle school and high school with them. And they you know, were addicted and got clean for a little while and then used again and, and passed away, unfortunately. So a governor can, can do a lot in that regard. And one area I don't really hear a lot of candidates talking about, I've certainly never heard Chris Sununu talk about it, um, is the Portuguese model that they have over in Portugal dealing with hard drugs. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. No, I'm, I'm not. What do you mean by Portuguese model? So the Portuguese model takes a harm reduction approach to hard drug use, and they have uh, clean needle exchanges. They have centers where people can use the drug under guidance of a doctor, a medical professional. They basically treat it as a health issue, not a criminal issue where you're thrown in a cage and you know put away in prison where there's no chance for a human to be rehabbed or healed of their of their addiction so um, a lot of libertarians are pretty big on this they're, they're, they view it very favorably I view it very favorably I think it would definitely be at least worth a shot maybe not in the whole state but maybe some counties you have a pilot program or something like that because it's obvious what we're doing isn't working so what would uh, a Valinsky administration look like dealing with hard drugs and the opioid problems right so uh, I think you're right that what we're doing is not working uh, a lot of this, though, is governed by federal law, um, and we can't control what's listed as a controlled substance and, and what's not. I like the idea of a harm reduction model. Um, New Hampshire at one time, you, you may know this, had a nation-leading mental health system, community mental health system, and we stopped investing in it. Mm. And with the failure to invest, by the time the opioid crisis hit, the mental health system was gone. And so I know one of my kids happens to be a clinical social worker. Uh, and so she and I talk about these issues. Addiction is not a straight line. You, you don't go from kicking a habit to complete recovery in a straight line. It's a matter of relapsing, getting back on the, the right path, relapsing again. We need to make allowances for that. We need to have a functioning mental health system. We need to decriminalize the behavior. One point on which Sununu and I completely disagree is if it was given to me, I would sign a marijuana legalization bill in a heartbeat. Right on. Chris Sununu opposes that. Dan Feltis agrees with me, but won't say it. So there's a... What's he scared of? What are you scared of, Danny boy? <laughs> I, I'll let Dan speak for himself, but I, I think it, you know, I'm an old public defender. Uh, so I, I was a public defender here. I've defended death penalty cases throughout the South. I understand the criminal justice system and how biased that system is. I've recently seen some ACLU studies that uh, indicate where marijuana is, possession is still a crime the rate of arrest of people of color is four times that of white people. Um, it's just another expression of how racial injustice exists in our country. And we should take away the tools of racial injustice. And one way of doing that is by legalizing marijuana, take it off the table. 
Absolutely. So you would full stop, totally legalize marijuana as governor if it came to your desk? For adult use, yes. So does that look somewhat like how alcohol is regulated? Yeah, it does. You know, we're surrounded by states that have legalized for adult use, uh, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, and Canada. Um, so you can go into uh, a dispensary in any of those states or in Canada um, and buy marijuana legally up to a certain amount um, and possess it. It's not a crime. Um, people are, our reg regimen in New Hampshire is medical only and then the state makes it so hard to get medical marijuana that it's much easier for people who use it, veterans, people who have anxiety problems, to just drop down to Massachusetts, get mm -hmm. it there, um, and avoid all of the stigma that New Hampshire intentionally attaches to marijuana possession. So uh, I'm absolutely uh, for legalization. There might be some revenue that comes from it, but that's the last of, of the Sure. Reasons. Oh, I mean, there definitely will be revenue. I mean, these states are, are doing very well with it. Um, yeah, a lot of my friends go to the dispensary in Northampton, Mass., which is not too, too bad of a drive from my neck of the woods here in Peterborough. And uh, by all accounts, uh, you know, two green thumbs up for, for what they're doing. And it's just kind of a bummer that the live free or die state, we're not there yet. But I, I have a feeling we will be there soon. And I have to give a shout out to my friend, Matt Simon, who's yes. uh, huge. Just he's, he's the guy for, yeah. Yeah. for advocating for common sense marijuana policy. And um, I worked with him on Gary Johnson's campaign in 2012 here in New Hampshire. So I've known him a while and he came and did a great uh, forum with uh, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign, which I helped here in the state for a year. And um, so it's, it, we got good, plenty of good people in New Hampshire who can help us roll that out if, you know, if and when we do legalize it. So I'll tell you a funny story. Um, on 420, we wanted to feature a nonprofit that deals with legalization. Um, and we found the Last Prisoners Project in Denver. They advocate for legalization and then expungements and reintroduction into society of people who are held for crimes that would no longer exist. And so we called them to get their permission to, to support them publicly. And it turns out that the young lawyer who is the executive director of this group in Denver is someone I taught in Hebrew school when she was in seventh grade. And oh, so no kidding. My social justice class in seventh grade reached out to this issue in Denver. Uh, the young woman's from Hooksett originally. Okay. Uh, went on to Harvard Law School and is now the exec of this organization. Yeah, it's a small world. Yeah, and your uh, member on your staff there, when we were setting this interview up, she mentioned uh, Pat Barry, the principal. <laughs> and Pat Barry was my uh, favorite teacher in high school. She was my English teacher for two years. Yeah. At yeah. Conant, Conant High School in Jaffrey. And um, so, yeah, it's a small world. We're a small state. Everyone knows everybody. That's um, true. But that's, that's good company, though. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, that I'm really with, proud of that. And Pat. Pat and I uh, both spoke on the program when Bernie was at Stevens High School. Uh, uh, okay. This winter. Um, so it was, it was good to see Pat there. It was good to see Bernie, too. But um, yeah. it was nice to connect. And, of course, I, I have my own personal connection to Stevens High because of the litigation. You know, I, I went to school in a community where a mill failed, happened to be a steel mill. 
in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, but a lot of it was very reminiscent of Claremont where the textile mills are gone. Right. Uh, it's not the fault of the people who live there. It's the fault of the system in which they act. And so uh, I'm the only one in my family to go to college. Uh, right, right. You have what, four siblings? You're one of four? I'm one of four. I'm the only one to go to college. And then when I went to law school, I took a year off and worked as a carpenter to earn my first year's tuition. Um, wow. So it's a little different approach. I don't have lawyers in my family. I'm not the son or uh, right. Your, your dad was a mechanic or a yeah. tech? A mechanic and a maintenance man. Yeah. Uh, and my mom was a homemaker. Right. Uh, and my siblings um, have pretty straightforward jobs. Blue yeah, you're, you're not the son of a governor in a legacy family, dynasty family in New Hampshire like some people we know. <laughs> I, I didn't get into college because my dad was a professor at MIT at the time. Right. And, uh, you know, another funny thing about Pat Barry and I, we both have the distinction of losing to John Hunt for state rep <laughs> here in our neck of the woods. Pat challenged him 100 years ago as a Democrat. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of more of a libertarian, a lot of things. So I ran as a kind of a Liberty Republican in 2012 and I lost in the primary by 70 votes. Ooh, so it was, yeah, it was the closest someone ever really came to, uh, putting up a legit challenge to John Hunt. He was pretty scared. He was, he didn't like that. I was talking about legalizing marijuana. He's like, what kind of Republican are you? Well, I'm, I said, first, I'm a free thinking person. Okay. Before I'm a political party. And uh, this is the direction that this policy is going to be moving in. This is the direction our country is moving in. And he's like, Oh, you know, all this and that. So he was a little, uh, he was a little flustered, but you know, thankfully the trust fund was still strong from all the steel money from his dad. And he was able to keep the seat that he's held since the year I was born in 1986. We said, right? Yeah. That guy's had that seat since, you know, as long as I've been drawing breath. I hadn't realized that. Yeah. But good for you for challenging him. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's healthy. Regardless yeah. of your politics and his politics, it's healthy to have challenges and have people talk about the important issues. Uh, I, I'm the kind of person running for office that isn't afraid to talk about the issues. I'm, I'm not a waffler. I, I, right. I, I'm too experienced, uh, too mature in my thinking. I know where I stand. I, I listen to people. I, I'm pretty much of a geek. I'd, I'd like to geek out on policy <laughs> issues. Hell yeah. Uh, but I'm pretty capable of understanding what I think is important. So, and so, you're, so you're from Pennsylvania originally? Yes. Okay. And you moved, you've been in New Hampshire, what, 37 years? 38 now. 38 yes. years. Yeah, we moved here in 82. Okay. Um, for me to take a job with uh, the public defender office and uh, for us to live closer to my wife's family. My wife is from Massachusetts. Um, my wife's also a lawyer. The two okay. of us have been practicing in Appalachia in Tennessee. Okay. She wow. was a legal aid lawyer and I taught at UT Law School and began defending death penalty cases there. Wow. Uh, so I've since gone on to defend a number of death penalty cases through and including January of this year. I actually took a week off from the campaign um, to go down to Georgia. One of my clients, a client of 30 years, was scheduled to be executed. Um, and he asked me to be his witness. Um, and we did a last ditch hearing and five hours before his scheduled execution, 
the order came in commuting his sentence. Um, I was sitting with he and his mom when another lawyer who'd stayed at the courthouse came into the cell where we were sitting and said, they just changed your sentence to life. Wow. Um, I can't I, even imagine what that felt like. It, uh, it took me a couple of weeks before I could talk about it without crying. Um, yeah. I'm not a crier. I'm pretty tough. But that experience um, is not one I want to repeat um, because it was so close to the end. And this was the 10th, 10th commutation in Georgia since 1976. Wow. So the odds were stacked against us. You want to uh, talk about 11th hour? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. So it was, That's uh, amazing, man. It was That's, a little scary. Yeah. But, so to, to do that work, you know, is empathy, compassion, humanity, um, courage. Those are just all things that are so devoid in politics now. So when you hear about someone like yourself working in that, it seems you would, you would take a lot of that into the state house. Well, I, you know, I'm 64. So I take a, a lot of experience in the state house. You know, I, I did the Claremont case. I was the Civil Liberties Union's general counsel here in New Hampshire. I've done death penalty cases throughout the South. All of that comes with me. But for the last 20 years, I've been a business litigator. Um, so I understand how to read a spreadsheet or a balance sheet. I understand how businesses work. And so I have both sides of it. You know, my friend Dan tries to complain that I'm somehow a corporate lawyer um, and that I shouldn't be trusted. Um, I'm very proud of the legal work I've done. I went from the son of a mechanic to being one of the better lawyers in our state uh, and all the while maintained my commitment to doing volunteer lawyer work in places where no one else would go. So Dan deserves a great deal of credit for being a legal aid lawyer. Uh, but in that capacity, he was mostly a lobbyist, lobbying for great causes. Um, I've been in some of the ugliest places in Georgia and Mississippi you can imagine. And I was the only one in those courtrooms standing up for the black or brown person who was being persecuted. Um, those are experiences that stick with you. And I'm very proud to have accomplished the things that we have accomplished on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue into the next thing I want to ask you about is with uh, police reforms that are just so badly needed. And, you know, it can't be a one size fits all, in my opinion, because, you know, every state, every community is different. Um, you know, we some people here in Peterborough saying totally defund the police and X, Y and Z and this and that. And then some people are saying, well, we need to shift um, what the jobs are that police do and and change what they respond to so where where are you on that and, and what do you think are some of the directions we can go down to better how police handle the population in our country and in our state yeah uh, i i think your opening comment was spot on that it does depend on content and context where the police are and where the policing occurs um when people say they want to totally defund the police, remove the police force, 
it makes me think of the domestic violence situations that happen here and elsewhere and who's going to walk into those circumstances and protect the victim. It's usually a woman. Uh, who's going to go and protect the woman in that circumstance? Uh, the police have been terrible at doing that over the years, but have gotten better with training and tactics that are informed by some of the better coalition against domestic violence people. So they've learned and improved. I've published in conjunction with uh, uh, Black Lives Matters protests around the country. I've published in the Concord Man uh, Monitor some of my thoughts on this. All police recruits in New Hampshire go through the same police standards and training council program in Concord, and so do correctional officers. That's the time to start to grab them. We need to talk about implicit bias training, which makes a huge difference. We need to talk about beefing up their mediation skills and their conflict de-escalation skills. We need to make our police departments more diverse and how does that happen? The former police chief, now retired from Dover, uh, Chief Colaruso, used to recruit at John Jay College in New York City to get people to move to Dover to become police officers. You have to make that kind of effort uh, to, ver to diversify your police department. But then even with that, you have to be careful to have policies that make sense. So departments across the country are reviewing their policies against using chokeholds and physically compressing someone's chest while you're subduing them. Those are both highly, highly dangerous activities that need to be outlawed. Uh, some communities are looking at what are called duty to intervene policies. You know, there's the blue code of silence where you never say anything bad about a, a fellow officer. A duty to intervene policy says your highest responsibility is to do justice. And that may mean that you stop an officer from being violent towards someone in custody. It may mean that you report misconduct. And I'm afraid that the governor who says we don't have systemic racism in New Hampshire, who today I heard said we have the best police officers in the country here. I, I don't know how you even reach that conclusion, um, but that kind of rah-rah attitude doesn't get the job done. We need critical thinking when it comes to police departments. And I don't know about Peterborough, but Concord has a Bearcat, which is a tank. We got one in Keene. Okay. There, there's no need in rural New Hampshire <laughs> no. police department to own a tank. No, absolutely not. I mean, maybe during the Pumpkin Fest riots in Keene they had there, there was a lot of drunken Keene staters. You know, I could just, I went to Franklin Pierce, so I'm cool with maybe some Keene staters getting run over by the Bearcat. No, not really. But you're, you're absolutely right. We don't need that. We don't need military surplus equipment in our streets in the Granite State. That stuff, uh, you know, um, against all the wars, but it belongs in a war zone. That's what it's made for. It's an it's a, it's a instrument of destruction and violence and militarism. It's not an instrument of law enforcement in a state. So I'm with you on that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Peterborough, I, I tell people, like, look, I grew up with some of the cops in this town. I went to school with them. I, I've known a couple of them since we were young kids. And I would never hesitate to call them for anything. But I know that that's different around the country. It's different around our state. Well, and it's different when you're of a different color than the police officers. Um, and that's why the implicit bias training is so, so important. Will you be treated, you, Eric, be treated the same as a young black man driving through labor? Right. right. We need to talk about it. Well, that. we do. No one likes dealing with the police, but I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I've been pulled over. Sometimes I have a lead foot on 101 coming and going to Manchester. And never once did I ever feel that this, me being pulled over for speeding is going to end up with me being killed. Never felt that way. Right. And, exactly. I, and I know black people, it's a totally different ball game. And I recognize that. Yes. Yes. And we all need to understand that. Even happened here uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, uh, with the young man arrested in Albany, New Hampshire, apparently for not having an inspection sticker. Uh, the troopers mm -hmm. who stopped him wound up busting out the passenger window, tasing him and pulling him out by the Jesus. head. And then he was charged with disobeying an officer. There, it, yeah. The idea that you would stop someone uh, in this COVID crisis um, for not having an inspection sticker is a little beyond me. Well, you would hope for a little bit of leniency and understanding. I've been pulled over for that very thing in um, Bedford, New Hampshire. My inspection, you know, I didn't have the money for it. You know, it's when you're young owning a car, man, it's, it's, and you're yeah. not, you don't, you don't come from the Sununu family and have the money. It's, it's tough to uh, keep a car going. So uh, yeah, I had, my sticker was expired and it was just a very pleasant exchange. And he wrote me a ticket and he sent me on my way back on 101 out towards the Monadnock region. So that's my experience, you know, but that is not the experience that people of color have. Right, right. And it's something to be thoughtful about. It's yeah. Well, our time's winding down here, Andrew. I want to give you the last word. Um, I want you to make your pitch to the New Hampshire voters and uh, just tell people where they can find you and why you should be the next governor of the great Granite State of New Hampshire. I, here's what I would say. This is a time of great uncertainty where we need courageous leadership. Um, leadership needs to be fact-based, science-driven, public health data-driven. We need to understand that we're all in this together and create a New Hampshire that doesn't leave anyone behind. Which means we have to look at our tax system. We have to look at the services we provide or can't provide to the people of our state. I hope you'll check us out. We're at valinskynh.com. That's where the information is about our campaign. That's where you can volunteer. That's where you can contribute. We're building a movement and we want you to be part of it. Well, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Jackman Radio today. It's been awesome to meet you here via Zoom. And um, I hope we can, yeah, absolutely. I hope we can meet in person uh, sometime in the near future. Is there gonna be anything uh, out in the real world? Or are you kind of holding off on that to see what happens? Well, we're. We're staying with Zoom for the time being. You know, we, we can get 50 to 80 people on a Zoom meeting uh, for our campaign. And then I can Zoom into smaller meetings around the state that other people invite us to. It's the safe way to do this. Um, just, I, I heard that Philadelphia is going back to phase one of their opening up because the virus is flaring. 
we need to be really careful. And so, absolutely. Um, apropos of the name of your show, um, <laughs> I, I brought a drink with me for after the show called The Governor. It's my favorite beer. It happens to be an IPA from Concord Craft Brewery. Great plug right there. Well, and that, that's a fine beer. And my show is sponsored by Post and Beam Brewing here in Peterborough, right in downtown. So if you can get down here sometime, Andrew, maybe before the election, we can uh, crack a beer together and uh, keep the conversation going. Absolutely. All right. Well, folks, check out Andrew Valinsky. I want to thank you for joining me tonight. Um, and please support Jackman Radio by going to patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. Like this video, click subscribe, and be good to one another over and out. Be safe. Take care.